I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 26th part of my sermon series, The Last Year of the Life of Christ, in which my point is that friendship with God requires us to use that which we have fruitfully to do good works. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. November 30th, and today is the 26th part of our sermon series on the last day of the life of Christ. Our text is Luke chapter 16, verse 8, which says this, So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. God bless the reading of his word. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name. Of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, I find this to be one of the more interesting parables that Jesus ever told. Luke 16, 1 and 2 says, Jesus also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Now a steward is one that handles the affairs of another. Since the parable mentions that the man is rich and that he wanted an accounting from the steward, it would seem that the steward was in charge of the rich man's commodity accounts which made him an analogous to a commodities broker, especially considering the next part of, of the parable in Luke 16, 3 through 7. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his masters that is to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So it appears 
that the steward's job is to make the rich man money by trading in or receiving commodities from those who have them. As an aside, the oil mentioned in the parable is probably olive oil or some other oil derived from an agricultural product as fossil fuels for home heating or vehicular transportation had not been invented during the time of Jesus. The commodities mentioned are both agriculturals, so let's think about the economics of the agricultural society. Suppose you decide that you want to become a farmer. You need to plant harvest and sell crops to support your family, but you won't have any income from your farm until the harvest. Many farrows have to borrow money to support themselves and their families until the harvest, using the harvest as collateral against which the banker will give you a loan. So let's lay out a business plan using simple round numbers to make the situation easy to understand. These numbers aren't intended to be correct, but just easy to calculate examples so you can understand the concept more easily. So to figure out our expenses, let's divide the year in half, figuring the first half of the year for the planting and growing seasons and the second half of the year for the harvest and winter seasons. Let's assume that you will need $1,000 to live during each half of the year, which makes your annual expenses a total of $2,000. And let's project that the harvest will net you $2,500, which is the 25% return on your investment. Now, you need to live until the harvest, so you borrow $1,000 from the banker, which is the amount that you would need for the planting season in the first half of the year. When the harvest is sold, use $1,000 of the $2,500 to pay the banker the $1,000 you owe, use $1,000 to live for the rest of the year, and you have $500 left over for the next planting season. Using the $500 from the first year in the second year, you only need to borrow $500 to live during the planting season. When harvest time comes, your $2,500 revenue allows you to pay the banker his $500 back, and now you have both the $1,000 that you need for the current harvest season and the $1,000 that you need for the next planting season. In the third year, you do not need to borrow any money to live. After the harvest in the third year, you have the $1,000 that you need for the harvest season and the $1,000 you need for the next planting season, and you have a $500 profit. Let's assume that to grow your business, you invest each $500 of clear profit into more land, which will expand your farm and increase your revenue. With the increased acreage, your annual expenses increase to $1,500 for each half of the year, or a total of $3,000. And your new expectation of revenue is $3,750. You only brought $1,000 forward from the previous year for planting and growing season expenses, so you need to borrow another $500 to make ends meet for the planting season of the fourth year. Suppose everything continues to go as planned. Your income for the fourth harvest is $3,750. You pay back the $500 for the banker. You use the $1,500 for the harvest season. You have the $1,500 for the next planting season, and you have $250 as profit. The fifth year, 
your income is again $3,750, which when added to the fourth year's profit of $250 gives you a total of $4,000. You need $3,000 for the fifth harvest season and the sixth planting season, so you don't have to borrow any money, and you have a profit of $1,000 with which to buy more land or to become a banker yourself because you could use your $1,000 profit to support someone else's new farming endeavor. Now, this is a high-level business financial plan for an agricultural business. But if I presented this business plan to the banker down the street, the banker would reject my plan because I did not figure in the interest that the banker would be charging on the loan. And the reason that I did not figure the interest is that Jesus is telling the story as an Israelite and the Old Testament word for interest is usury. And in Leviticus 25, 35 to 37, God tells the Israelites, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with him. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Now, usury is a problem during the time of Jesus Christ, as Jesus often chastised the money changers in the temple who charged people interest when they exchanged their secular money for temple money with which they could buy their sacrifices. Usury was forbidden to help the poor, but poverty is not the only reason given in Scripture to not charge interest, as Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20 tells us. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest, but to your brother, you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all which you set your hand in the land to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. So now that we understand about interest, let's go back to our plan. Our farming plan is based upon receiving God's blessing which will enable us to reap $2,500 worth of crops for every $2,000 worth of investment in seed, fertilizer, and labor. And although we can and we have to do our due diligence by planting, fertilizing, and performing all the techniques required for successful agriculture, we need God's blessing because we have no control over that, which is probably the most important element of farming, that being the weather. Unseasonable cold at the wrong time can decimate the crop. A lack of rain during the proper part of the growing season may prove devastating to the crop. A tornado may rip the crop out of the ground as it is ripening for harvest. On the other hand, even if there are no weather-related catastrophes to the crop, the crop may be so abundant that the prices for which we can sell our crops may fall. Any number of things over which we have no control may happen. Now, Job was an agricultural industrialist of some renown in his area, and things were going well for him until he had one really bad day. Job chapter 1, verse 13 through 19 records, Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, 
And a messenger came into Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So, just because we have a good plan does not mean that we are going to be successful. Our success really depends upon the Lord facilitating our success. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 16 tells us, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So we endeavor to influence the Lord's will by seeking his favor. We have read God's instruction to the Israelites to not charge their fellow Israelites interest on loans. And it would seem logical that to follow God's instruction would be the easiest way to seek his favor. But in the parable, the servant had done something that caused his master to remove him from the stewardship. And the servant remedied the problem by reducing the amounts that the various debtors owed to the master. Now, although the Bible says that the master was dismissing the servants because he was wasting his goods, the servant may also have been charging usury on loans, which would seem to fit the scenario that Jesus gives us in the parable. Now, in the parable... The servant reduced one person's bill by 50% and another person's bill by 20%. Let's see what effect a 20% interest charge would make on our farming scenario. We will start out with our $1,000 loan from the banker, but after the harvest, rather than having 500 left as we would if there were no interest, the amount left over for the first year is reduced to $300. To finance the planting season the second year, rather than borrowing 500, we have to borrow 700. At the end of the second year, we have to pay back 840, and the amount left over is only 660, so we still need to borrow 340 for the third year. At the end of the third year, rather than having the $500 profit needed to expand that we would have had had there been no interest, we only have a profit of $92 so we can't expand. We don't need to borrow any money to live the fourth year, however. At the end of the fourth year, we have a profit of $592, dollars 
which is enough to do the expansion that we would have been able to do in the third year had we not have to pay the interest. But after buying the land, we only have $92 left, so we have to borrow $1,408 to support the planting season expenses in the fifth year. And after our harvest expenses, we have $560 to put forward the planting season in the sixth year. If there was no interest, we would have had a $1,000 profit going into the seventh year, but at the 20% interest, we have to borrow $940 to get to the seventh year. Now, you can see the influence that interest has on our profitability. But now, why loan money to someone if you can't charge them interest? That's a good question. But the premise of the parable is that the one in charge of loaning the money is a steward, not the owner. God, as the owner of all things, told the Israelites to make loans to one another without charging one another interest because God wanted to make it clear to the Israelites that they did not own the resources that they were loaning to one another. A person may hold the earthly title to a piece of property, but the title does not mean that the person that holds the title owns the property. It only means that he is the legal holder of the property as long as God allows him to use it. Psalm 24 and 1 informs us, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Ask the people in Louisiana and Mississippi whose property became part of the Gulf of Mexico during Hurricane Katrina, whether or not they still own that property. And if someone's property is not destroyed by a natural disaster, the chances are great that the property will probably exist longer than the person that holds the title will be alive. And at his death, someone else will take over the title. So we do not own our possessions. We are simply stewards over them as long as they or we are here. God as the true owner is justified in telling us how to use his possessions. And he is telling the Israelites that he does not want them profiting from the loans that they make to their brothers. The unjust steward wasted his master's good and probably did not display the proper brotherly relationship to those to whom he made loans because he charged them interest. But once he found out that he was no longer going to be the steward, but just a brother, he realized that he needed to have a brotherly relationship with his peers. He made provision to become a brother once again by following the word of God, treating the creditors as brothers, and canceling the interest. God gives us his approval when we recognize our own disobedience and correct our own errors, as our text in Luke 16 and 8 tells us. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of life. Now there is an eternal application for this story. Jesus explains in Luke 16 and nine, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now what does this mean? 
Of what unrighteous mammon does the Lord speak, and who are these friends with everlasting homes that can take us in at the end of our earthly life? Well, mammon means money or the material resources that we have. How we choose to spend our money is a parallel for how we choose to spend our earthly lives. And the one of which I know that has an everlasting home to which I can go is God himself. So this passage of scripture is telling us to use the earthly resources over which God, the owner of this life, has made us steward to become friends of God by doing that which pleases him, correcting any errors that we may have made as did the steward. Paul discusses that which is required to please God in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 through 13, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the fathers who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. So Paul tells us that friendship with God requires us to use that which we have fruitfully to do good works, to increase in the knowledge of God. Paul is instructing us not just to develop academic knowledge, but the strength that comes from exercising the power of God, which will lead us into developing the attributes of patience, long-suffering, and ultimately joy. Now, what strength are we instructed to develop using the power of God? Jesus, during his earthly life as a man, used the power of God more forcefully than anyone in the history of the world, even to the point of rising from the dead with power. And listen to that which John 3.17 says about Jesus' mission. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, through him, might be saved. The strength that God gave Jesus was the strength needed to make the ultimate sacrifice to save someone other than himself. And God's objective is that we all develop the strength needed to endure shame and pain for the testimony of the Lord, even as God gave Jesus the strength to go to the cross, to endure the shame and the pain of crucifixion, and to do so with the confident assurance that even though his enemies temporarily had the upper hand over him, that the exercise of patience and long-suffering through this temporary trial would lead Jesus to the permanent experience of joy. Jesus spent three years in ministry looking forward to the cross, but when the cross actually appeared on the horizon, Jesus found himself in a position that many men have visited, that being dreading the trial that they were about to endure. In Luke twenty-two thirty-nine and following, the Bible says, Coming out, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, 
Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was in such a state of anxiety that he actually sweated blood. The condition is known as hematidrosis and is a severe dilation of blood vessels near the skin occurring in people in severe panic and fright. How did Jesus survive this agony and develop the equanimity that he showed in front of the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and the cross? Luke twenty-two forty-three records, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. This is the meaning of Colossians 1, 11 which says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. We are called to use the resources that God has given us to impress God and build ourselves eternal habitations. God himself will assist us if we decide to put our lives on the line as did the Lord, the apostles, and the martyrs. The real test for Christians is whether or not we can go against societal norms as did Jesus. Whether we can uphold the power of God in the, the word of God rather, in the midst of tribulation. And whether or not we can stand strong for God in the face of any circumstance, including the ultimate one, which is death. Jesus himself encourages us in Revelation chapter two, verse 10 and 11, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. But you say to me, where are Christians dying in the world? Where is this great tribulation for which Christians have to give their lives? I see churches on every corner, and I don't see Christians dying anywhere. I say to you, I agree. Christians in the USA are not under any persecution as compared to the apostles and the martyrs. But it may be that the devil is using a tool other than murder to persecute us. Listen to how Satan defeated the wisest man in the history of the world, the great King Solomon. Solomon's relationship with the Lord began when Solomon became king and recognized that he was in over his head. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 and following, Solomon said, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Then God said to Solomon, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor has asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been any like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. 
And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall be not be anyone like you among all the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God blessed Solomon as he had blessed no one else. And Solomon built Israel into the greatest kingdom in the history of the world with the type of prosperity that we have in our country. But 1 Kings 11, chapter 1 and following, tells us about Solomon's downfall. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Then Solomon built a temple on the high place for the idol god Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for the idol god Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Now it is interesting that the devil uses murder to stop the worship of God from taking hold. But once the worship of God is in place, the devil uses immorality to undermine the worshipers of God. Solomon spent money on the worship of God, but also on building temples to worship idols for his foreign wives and made the Lord angry with him. That's why Jesus says in Luke 16 and 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least, is unjust also in much. To administer a great empire would have been considered much by many, as it is a unique job that only a few ever get to have, while to maintain a marital relationship would be considered little, as marriage is a responsibility given to almost all men. Solomon was able to use the wisdom that God gave him to administer the government of the greatest nation in the world, but he failed to use that wisdom in his marital relationships and that which was common and the least of his responsibilities ultimately brought him down. Luke 16, 11 and 12 reads, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you your trust who will commit to your trust the true riches and if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's who will give you what is your own in Luke 19 Jesus tells us the parable of the miners in which three men were given miners a denomination of money to invest 
The man that was given 10 minas invested and returned 10 additional minas to the master. Luke 19 and 17 says, And the master said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. The man that was given the five minas invested and returned additional five minas to his master. He was rewarded with dominion over five cities in his master's kingdom. The man that was given one minor hid his minor and returned it to his master with no return. The master took the minor from him and gave it to the man that had 10. The point is that your reward in the kingdom is based upon that which you do with the resources that God has given you on the earth. And Jesus's final point in this parable is that we must be working for God as we live this life. He says in Luke 16 and 13, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. When we decide to do things, we have to consider our reasons. Are we serving God or, or our own appetites? Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 32 39, therefore whoever confesses me before men him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to being, bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring, to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, the major theme of Jesus' teaching is his most important one, that being our eligibility for entrance into heaven. Those of us that are saved have eternal life, but that life is in heaven, not on this earth. Nevertheless, we do not need to ignore the pedestrian concerns of this life in order to live for Christ. And Jesus does not say that we ought not love mother, father, son, or daughter, but that we ought not love them more than him. Paul tells us that we can enjoy life, but we need to maintain perspective. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. The parable and the teaching tell us the same thing. We need to maintain primary allegiance to the kingdom of God. To always be ready to sacrifice everything, including our very life, for the cause of Christ if need be, but at the same time to love one another, to maintain our familiar commitments, and to enjoy our possessions while remembering 
that we are simply stewards of them. We must follow the law of love, treat others fairly, and share with them. Jesus tells us in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So let us learn this lesson and be wise stewards of that which God has given us to administer until he reclaims us for his heavenly kingdom at the end of our earthly lives. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us this lesson and that you have given us the instruction on how we should hold our possessions. Let us be good stewards over that which we have and remind us that those things that you have given us are ours to use and to enjoy, but the day may come when you will require them of us and help us to be ready to give them up if it is required and help us always to keep you uppermost in our minds that we might be able to stand for you wherever we go. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. We ask you to give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then to bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit familylifebc.com.